Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hey everyone, it's Rena Jadov here today, and I am super excited to have with us Susan Fierce Thompson, PhD, who is a New York Times bestselling author, an adjunct associate professor of the brain and cognitive sciences at University of Rochester, and an expert in the psychology of eating. Yes, we are talking about weight loss today, but you know what? It's a lot more than weight loss. We are talking about the right way to eat and an easier way to weight loss. She's the president of the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss and the founder and CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions, a company dedicated to helping people achieve the health and vibrancy that accompany permanent weight loss. Her program, which by the way, everyone I've talked to raves about, utilizes cutting edge research to explain how the brain blocks weight loss. See, I knew it, it's not our fault, it's the brain. And every day she teaches people how to undo that damage so they can live happy, thin, and free. Welcome, Susan. Hey, so good to be here with you, Rena. I'm super excited. I know so are our listeners and viewers. Now, for those of you, quick reminder, if you're listening to this on a podcast, there is a video to go with it. If you're on a video, know that there's a podcast. If you want to hop over to iTunes or SoundCloud, um, you're going to love what you're going to hear today. So I'm hoping at the end you're going to share with your loved ones who could use a little extra help. All right. This is a book master class, which means we're going to go over all the different chapters of the book. Susan, let's get started with the introduction. So you have a fascinating story of A, how you lost your weight, and B, of course, why you wrote the book. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, sure, Rena. So I read this quote somewhere. I forget who said it. The quote was either in the book Atomic Habits or Tribe of Mentors, because those are the two books that I'm reading right now. But it said, in order to write a great book, you must first become the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is my story. So I wrote this book on like, you know, the neuroscience of uh, food addiction and weight loss and how people who've struggled their whole life can finally lose weight. The average person who tries my program has tried more than 16 times to lose weight in their life unsuccessfully. And that's my story. And, um, you know, I was overweight as a kid. I didn't think I was, but looking back at pictures, I was already overweight by the age of six or seven or eight, quite pudgy. And then, um, you know, I weighed more than I weigh now at the age of 11. And what happened for me was I started doing drugs as a teenager, to, you know, partially to explore and partially to control my weight and my eating. And um, that sort of, I have a very addictable brain right now, just super addictable. And um, uh, that kind of took over my life. I dropped out of high school and I started using harder and harder drugs, the ones that really are good for weight control, like crystal meth and cocaine and ultimately crack cocaine. Yikes. Um, yeah, super bad addiction. Dropped out of high school, uh, you know, at the end was spending most of my time in a crack house, didn't have a place to live, was a prostitute. Um, and I um, got clean and sober at the age of 20. Um, and I'm 44 now, so I haven't had a drink or a drug in 24 years. That's um, Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. It was the biggest miracle of my life. But, you know, I put down the drink and the drug and I got fat so fast. <laughs> 
I knew I would. Like I would. <laughs> and at first I didn't care because, you know, I was just so grateful to be lifted out of the hell that I was living in. But within about nine months, I cared. You know, it was like, oh no, I, I forgot about this. I hate showing up to life in um, a body that feels so wrong. Like I hate it. Um, I, you know, it's just not me. Every pound, extra pound on my body just feels like, I, yeah, I just want to scrape it off. I just yeah. don't yeah. want that weight on me. And so I marched myself down to a 12-step food program. Mm. And that started 20 years for me in 12-step food programs. Lots wow. of them. There's many different ones. And I, um, you know, I had some lack of success and then some serious success and sponsored a gazillion people and did different 12-step programs in different cities. So I got a sense of kind of the landscape of how they work, what works, what doesn't work. And um, so when I was 28 years old um, in 2003, I was, I, I'd become obese already in my 20s. And um, when I was 28 years old, I lost, I finally sort of found the thing that worked for me and the formula for exactly how to jigger and figure my food. And I lost all my excess weight. And I've been in a size four body since, you know, 2003. So that's like 15 years now. Um, that, I don't know if you know this, do you know like how rare that kind of sustained weight loss is to actually no, feel- tell, tell our listeners because very few people know how yeah. unsustainable weight loss really is. Yeah. Right. So once you've hit obesity, like the odds of actually living in a, in a truly like yeah. a normal BMI for over a decade, they're infinitesimal. It's like one, one hundredth of 1%, um, you know, almost like a unicorn. Like they just don't exist. Folks who do that. Um, there are people who lose some weight and keep it off for some period of time, but to lose all your excess weight and then keep it off for more than a decade, like long-term mm -hmm. I'm 15 years and counting now. It's just, it just doesn't happen. It's like you've switched the body, right? That's, that's yeah. what it is. Totally. And the brain. Yeah. Well, and the brain, of course. Yeah, totally. So, um, in the background there, I was like, you know, I got my, my high school equivalency test. I went, um, to San Jose city college. I transferred, I did well. I transferred from there to UC Berkeley. I got straight A's and spoke at the graduation. I got into every graduate school I applied to. I, I went to one of the top three schools in the world in brain and cognitive sciences. I got my PhD in that in 2003, same year that I lost my weight. And then I did a two-year postdoc in psychology in Australia, and then came back to the States and became a tenured psychology professor. And um, I started teaching a college course on the psychology of eating and the neuroscience of food addiction. And so um, five years ago, I was at this place in my life where um, I was spending about 30 hours a week for fun and for free, just helping people lose their weight and keep it off. Uh, on a volunteer basis, working with people, um, you know, seriously, like five hours a day. Um, and then I had three little kids. And uh, over here, I was a tenured psychology professor teaching my courses, you know, the assistant chair of the psychology department. And in my morning meditation arena, um, January 26th of 2014, um, the universe told me, like in language, <laughs> to write <laughs> to write a book called Bright Line Eating, not even kidding. And it came with such force, this, this message, that it was like, it shook my whole body and it was like a mandate. And um, it also luckily came with the motivation to do it because I was already pretty busy. And um, I was getting up at 5 a.m. and busy nonstop until you know, 10 or 11 p.m. And that, you know, what I started doing was the next day, 
I started setting my alarm at 425 a.m. and writing my book proposal from 430 to 5 a.m. every morning wow. before my meditation. And I didn't miss a day for months. Um, and the Bright Line Eating movement grew out of that. This is the book that the universe told me to write, Bright Line Eating, it's New York Times bestseller. <laughs> and, you know, now we've got like a million people in our movement and, you know, um, from every country on planet Earth. And, um, yeah, so um, that's basically the story. Uh, we're helping people lose weight and keep it off uh, like no one has ever done in the history of uh, the overweight and obesity issue. Fascinating, inspiring, you're amazing, and I can't wait to dive right into the chapters. Let's do it. All right, chapter one, the willpower gap. What is the willpower gap? Oh, so the willpower gap affects everybody. It's um, the gap between what we intend to execute in our lives and what we actually end up doing, right? So a, a lot of people um, approach a change in health or diet or exercise or whatever as just a problem of knowledge and motivation. Like if I'm really pumped up and then I figure out exactly what I'm going to do, you know, I'm good to go. And, you know, January 1st, we're going to, you know, uh, we're all psyched up and we're going to go do this new thing. And what they fail to factor in is the willpower gap, which is the brain is not actually wired to support you in executing that long term. Um, as a matter of fact, our execution module <laughs> in the face of a lot of temptations um, performs incredibly badly. Um, there's a massive gap between what you're actually going to do and what your knowledge, motivation, intention, and so forth, you know, uh, should dictate that you would do, right? So it actually doesn't matter how intent you are on losing weight, getting healthy. It actually doesn't matter um, because in the moment, you're going to decide to order a pizza. Yeah. Um, why does that happen? Because um, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the seat of sort of resisting temptation, um, is like a rechargeable battery with about 15 minutes of power in it. So imagine if your phone had like 15 minutes of charge, right? Like this thing would be almost completely useless with 15 minutes of charge. And the, the sort of the huge gaps in how this technology would support you if it were, if it were dying uh, after 15 minutes of good use, uh, those gaps would be enormous. That's what we've got on board in our brain with the part of the brain that actually reigns in temptations and allows us to execute um, our true plans, right? So um, I, I just like to share the neuroscience of that so that people understand that, um, first of all, that's a huge part of the reason why they've been failing to get yeah. help. Um, and, and that a solution is going to look different than whatever, all the other solutions they've tried in the past. I've never come across a plan in my entire life for weight loss that factors that in, in a meaningful way mm -hmm. that actually gives you tools to bridge the willpower gap. So in the rest of the book, I give tools to bridge the willpower gap, but it's really important to understand, you know, cause the things that drain that 15 minute battery pack. Yeah. Talk about that. Cause I, I was fascinated by the things that drained and I became very cognizant every, t every day of, Oh, I'm draining my willpower at this point. Totally. Share those. Cause those are fascinating. Yeah. And then we should also talk about how you know if your willpower is completely shot. So, yes. um, the things that drain it are first of all, resisting temptations is, is, is a big one. And research shows that we are resisting temptations an hour of an average of four hours a day, cumulative. That's crazy. Um, to eat is the number one, but also like, you know, to check Facebook, to leave work and go to a movie, to have sex with the person who works in the cubicle next to us. <laughs> you know, and, you know, these are like inappropriate impulses, so we rein them in. And that, like, that takes effort. That takes effort. 
Um, checking email because making decisions is a big one. So, you know, going through an email inbox is like, do I care? Am I responding? Reply to one, reply to all, you know, folder it, delete it, save it, you know, reply now, reply later. Like there's all these decisions that go into processing email. And after 15 minutes of that, that part of the brain is just shot. Um, another one is emotional regulation, which comes up if you're sitting in traffic and people are acting like jerks. It comes up if you've got kids and you can't, you know, say to little kids what you actually are thinking sometimes. I'm a mom and I know that I can't, I can't give them a piece of my mind on a regular basis or even really ever sometimes if they're not acting great, yes. right? I've got to like rein in my emotions there or, you know, your boss if he shows up with a new, you know, toupee or something. So, um, you know, so emotional regulation. Also, um, uh, task performance monitoring. So imagine like you're a teacher and you've got to like do your attendance roster and it's like careful work or any kind of careful work in an Excel spreadsheet or giving a public talk and making sure you don't say, um, too much, all those things shoot your willpower. So you emerge. And then the other thing is that that part of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex is highly sensitive to glucose fluctuations. Mm. So if your glucose has tanked, that part of the brain slows down to a crawl and it can't support you anymore. So you're checking email too long has gone by your blood sugars dropped. And now the vending machine is suddenly, you know, an option where it's really not part of your strategic plan for the, day, the month of the year to frequently visit that vending machine, but suddenly you find yourself doing it. And, Absolutely. you know, and of course your brain talks you into that being a good idea. That's the way the brain works. Um, so it's important to understand this willpower gap and to realize that if you're going to succeed, you have to be super clear about how you're going to bridge that gap. Cause that gap uh, can show up all day, any day, at any time. So you have to have a consistent system for getting past that um, uh, sort of pothole that shows up in your road all the time. And especially at night, right? That's, that's the most important thing. Yeah. 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11, midnight, it's like, you know, the, the race to the pantry for, for me, you know, these flax chocolate brownies, like I can eat a dozen within 15 minutes like I will wolf them down and I won't even feel guilty till about an hour later and then I'm yeah. like oh I cannot believe I did this yeah so totally. for some people three or four in the afternoon is already late mm, enough in the day yes. that sort of de depletion has yes. built up um some people even after like the morning stretch of work and by lunchtime they're ordering stuff that they didn't plan to order but yes it's true yes. That not always, but in general, uh, sleeping will replenish your willpower reserve. So you, you might, you know, a lot of people experience like I can get through breakfast yes. pretty well. And then, but not necessarily if you've got bad habits of swinging by Starbucks or Dunkin Donuts. Oh, or yeah. Fast food place, you know, those oh, will, yeah. you know, that's not really the willpower gap. That's, um, that's unhealthy habits. That's a different issue. But. That's the smells and the sight. You know, if I go into Starbucks saying, I'm just going to get my steamed almond milk, but then there's all these delicious looking things and my stomach growls and it's like, oh, fine today, just, just today I'm going to do this. So it's, it it's also, it could be that, um, if you end up at a Starbucks, it could also be a habit that like that's based true. on day yes. and location cues your car could drive through drive-throughs because of previous experience wiring your exactly. brain. Exactly. Right, well, I can't wait to dive into how each and every one of us can make sure that this willpower gap isn't what's holding us back. Totally. All right, let's talk about chapter two, insatiable hunger. Been there, done that, feel it. <laughs> talk to us a little bit about it. 
Yeah, totally. So we've got this new kind of hunger on board in our society. A lot of people will relate to this. Not everybody has it. This is not like the willpower gap. The willpower gap affects everybody. Insatiable hunger um, has set in for a majority of the population, but not everybody, but still a majority, like in the Western population, I would say in the United States, for example. Um, it's a weird kind of hunger. It's not evolutionary hunger. It's not like, wow, I haven't eaten anything in six or seven hours and boy, you know, my stomach is grumbling and I'm famished. It's the kind of hunger that's like, you've just eaten a full dinner and now you're headed to the couch to watch TV and you feel like you need a bag of chips to sit there and watch TV. And now the bag of chips is gone and you're headed to the freezer for ice cream. Now, if you ask your body in the midst of that, are you hungry? What happens is the body's saying no and the brain is shutting it down because that answer is threatening because the system needs more food. And it's saying, be quiet, body. We're not listening to the fact that you're not hungry. We need more food. It's like the hand and the elbow that are bending and putting the fork and the spoon to the mouth need to keep going. The brain needs more food. The mouth needs more food. The digestive system doesn't need any more food. And it can even be pretty clear about that. You could even like be full to the point of a little uncomfortable and all the other, uh, other aspects of your system still need more food so much that you'll keep eating. It's, kind, you know, it's a little bit like the eating pumpkin pie at the end of a Thanksgiving meal effect, but it's not really that because there's other reasons for that, that you would do that. But it's like an everyday phenomenon where for whatever reason, the signals that tell your brain and your body that you're done eating are not coming. And so you have this insatiable hunger. And we know now why that is and we know what the solution is. So um, that's pretty important. <laughs> why, why is it? Because I end up having these insatiable cravings where I feel like my stomach's an empty pit. And if you see me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty skinny. And I yeah. often, my, like my husband will look and say, where are you putting all that food? Yeah, totally. Uh, so what drives it? So careful, because you use the word cravings. That's actually the next chapter. And there is a difference between insatiable yes. hunger and cravings. Um, the insatiable hunger is like a grazing, snacking, overeating thing. Cravings are more like um, a specific drive to get a specific food that feels overwhelming. Like you're like a zombie, like, okay. Or it could be you're wandering up and down the grocery store aisles looking like, what's going to do it? What's going to be my fix? What's going to... Chocolate, you know, chocolate, 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 chocolate. Where is that chocolate? <laughs> but you're right. That's cravings. No, I've got the, I've got the grazing issue too. Yeah. What drives that need after having had a huge lunch? Right. To, to then want to, it's this action. And I've noticed, like I'll pick up a bag of almonds and I'll just sit there popping them in. So yeah. the whole bag's gone. It makes no sense. I'm not hungry. Totally. I don't even like almonds that much. Totally. Right. Irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Okay. You want to know what does it? What they Yeah. Do? Yeah. Okay. It's leptin resistance. Okay. Leptin is a hormone. Yes. Um, we haven't known about it for that long. It was discovered in 1994. Um, the cause of leptin resistance, then, then we, did, we didn't know about leptin resistance in 1994. We just discovered the hormone leptin in 1994. Then in the mid-2000s, 2004, 5, 6, we discovered the issue of leptin resistance and what causes it. Uh, and more has been uncovered about what causes it, even up to you know, some critical papers in this have been published in the last year. Um, okay, so leptin. Leptin is it, man. Leptin is the crux of the obesity epidemic. This is the thing. 
And what's driving it? Give just one quick response to what, what do you think is the number one reason that's driving this leptin resistance? Um, overeating processed foods like sugar and flour. Yeah. The ubiquitous availability of sugar and flour and the, our blindness to the fact that those foods act like drugs in our body and rewire our brains and our, our hormones. So, but let me unpack this a little bit. Like, so what is leptin? Leptin is the hormone that you would think we would have that's supposed to keep our body weight regulated. It's the hormone that like, like let's think back to our ancestors, right? So like we've just uh, killed a wildebeest and the blueberries are, uh, are in season and the bushes are full with blueberries at the same time. So what does our tribe do? We sit around and we gorge. Like we eat wildebeest and we eat blueberries and we're sitting around for days. We're fat and happy. Our, 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 his, our history is actually to be bingers. It makes a lot of sense to eat whatever's mm -hmm. available when it's available in that, mm -hmm. in that you know, environmental context, right? Um, so eat whatever you can is actually a perfectly good survival mechanism if you're living 100,000 years ago. So we would stuff our faces and we would, let's say, gain three to five pounds, okay? That fat releases leptin. The leptin circles back to the brain and says, you don't need any more fuel right now. You're not hungry and go get active because you've got some, mm -hmm. uh, some resources right now that you could go use to build a hut or find a mate or, you know, kill the next wildebeest, right? <laughs> Let's not mm -hmm. get that happy. Yeah. Let's <laughs> that we're going to survive next week as well as this week, right? So that's what leptin does. You're not hungry and you feel like exercising. Hello, that's the hormone we all need, right? You're not hungry and yes. you're exercising. So leptin is the hormone that if your brain can't see it, it, you show all the physiological markers of starvation. Interesting. I'm going to say that again. If your brain can't see your leptin or you don't have any leptin, you, you are starving, according to your brain. You are wasting away. And the brain develops an imperative to force you to eat more food at any available opportunity. Mm. So... What we've learned now is that a lot of the modern conditions are blocking the brain's ability to see the leptin. It's not that if you're overweight, you don't have leptin. You do. You've got more because you've got all this fat. Yeah. And yeah, so there's actually a straight linear curve between the amount of leptin in someone's blood and their fat levels, right, as there should be. But the brain can't see it. It's being blocked. And what we found is it's – now, this goes a little beyond what's in the book because there have been some recent mm -hmm. studies. In the book, I say it's being blocked by insulin levels, high insulin levels, not spikes, baseline. Like, you know, you eat enough crappy American processed food and your baseline insulin levels will double. Seriously. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's also being blocked by high triglycerides. Mm. Same cause, crappy standard American diet. Yeah. It's also being caused by high inflammation. Oh. Same cause, crappy, crappy American diet. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, that's basically what's going on. So you, you dramatically lower your baseline insulin levels, your inflammation and your triglycerides, which you can do, you know, depending on how badly your body is damaged. Some people can do that, you know, in two days to a week of eating really good food. You know, um, those things have come right down and the leptin comes back on board and they're like, whoa, I'm feeling appropriately satiated and full. Um, after a regular amount of food, and I haven't felt that way in years, right? Um, yeah, it can, the, the solution there can happen really fast. But if you're, if you have a lot of like, it's, let's say you have type 2 diabetes, or you're getting there, and your system is more out of whack, it might take you longer to, to get um, that insulin resistance taken care of with a good diet. 
chapter three, overpowering cravings. Talk a little bit about that. So cravings are the other system that's making us fat. Um, these, this is also not an issue that affects everybody. Okay, the willpower gap affects everybody. Insatiable hunger and overpowering cravings only affect certain people in the population, but these days it's most, it's most people. Overpowering cravings are an, are an addiction. Um, food addiction is very real. Don't believe anyone who says that it's not. I can explain some other time the difference in the field of why some people still don't believe in food addiction, but I will tell you, if you look at who they are, I promise you their background is not in neuroscience or addiction science. Their background is in counseling or something else, because everyone who's looked at the brain scans knows that food addiction is real. It's super clear. There's an area of the brain, it's like this little circuit that includes the nucleus accumbens and the ventral tegmental area, a little bit of the prefrontal cortex, some other areas. And it's the addiction reward motivation circuit, okay? And it, its major neurotransmitter system is dopamine-based. And that dopamine floods into the brain when we eat something like a donut or a bagel or any of these processed foods that just wouldn't have existed a long time ago. Honestly, like donuts, pizza, chocolate, bagels, these are the pornography of, yes. of the food world, right? They're not yes. real foods. And they are drugs. If you think about what a drug is, heroin and cocaine come from natural sources that are not addictive. Coca leaves and poppy plants are not addictive. You can eat them all day long and be fine. Um, but when you take the inner essence and you refine and purify it into a fine white powder, you've taken a, you've taken a plant, you've turned it into a drug. And that's what we've done with sugar and flour, okay? Doesn't have to be a white powder. It can be any color as shown by both whole wheat flour and uh, heroin. The issue is not gluten. The issue is the processing. Okay. So we take this processed food, we dump it into our system. It overpowers the addiction reward pleasure centers in the brain. And they respond in an appropriate way by saying, "Woo, baby, that was too much stimulation. We're going to, you could do that to me again. Okay. There it is. Oh, there it is again. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to make some modifications because we're getting flooded here. And what we're going to do is we're just going to trim the dopamine receptors a little bit. We're going to make them less numerous, less responsive. We're just going to like literally cleave off the ends of the dopamine receptors. So we just have fewer around here. Next time you eat that donut, baby, we're covered. Now that's a good plan so long as you plan to keep eating donuts forever. Mm. You decide to cut back on donuts and now you don't have enough baseline dopamine to feel normal, to feel okay. You get itchy, you get irritable. You start to feel desperate, bleak, not okay. You don't even know why, but you need something now. And not to get high, to get normal. Yeah. This is something, take it from an addict. Yeah. This is something people misunderstand. The addict's not using to get high. The yeah. addict is using to get normal. So it's this, it's this, it's hard to describe the feeling, but it's this like itchy, desperate. Anxiety. It's, it is. It's like this anxious feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and you got to go get your fix. So yeah. that's overpowering cravings. The good news is it's sugar and flour that are causing it. You cut out sugar and flour with the Bright Line Eating System or any other system, frankly, and the dopamine receptors heal. We know that. So there is, there is hope. There is a solution. Chapter four, the susceptibility scale. What is the susceptibility scale and how do we go about taking it? Rena, I think that this is one of the most important concepts that's standing between us and really solving the obesity epidemic. Because so many people who have really great insights about health and food 
are low on the susceptibility scale. And to be quite frank, they have no idea what it's like to be high on the susceptibility scale. And the solutions that they're talking about are not strong enough for someone mm-hmm. who's got a different kind of brain. And if we all understood that there's this scale that, that reflects how susceptible someone is to food addiction, how, so, how susceptible someone's brain is to being wired for that dopamine downregulation or that leptin resistance, not every brain is the same. And if your brain is, I mean, this is actually a good thing, evolutionarily speaking, really nimble, really wireable in that way, well, then the addiction sets in really fast in this current climate. And now you've got, you've got a problem on board that's not the same as uh, research shows that about one third of people and one third of rats and mice, if you care, are not susceptible to addiction at all. I'm even talking about to heroin. Wow. Like, yeah, you give them heroin every day for a month. They can't wait to get off it when that month wow. is over. Even if they, they'll go through some withdrawals, they don't care. They can't wait to get off it. I mean, just think of people going home with a Vicodin prescription after back surgery, right? Yeah. People don't become pill heads after that, right? So yeah. not everybody. So some people do. <laughs> I would. Um, so it depends on the type of brain you have, right? So the susceptibility scale goes from 1 to 10. You can find out what kind of brain you have at foodfreedomquiz.com. Because only by knowing where you're at on the scale can you really chart a path to food freedom. It's a different path for someone who's got a highly addictable brain than someone who's low in their addictive. So if you're highly addictable, now concepts like abstinence and quitting start to come into the vernacular. If you're low on the susceptibility scale, you have no addiction problem. You don't need to abstain from anything. You need to like moderate your calories, make your eat off smaller plates, make sure that you eat healthy foods. You know, think more about what foods you want to, healthy foods you want to add to your life than worrying about what you're going to subtract. There's all kinds of different strategies if you're low on the susceptibility scale. If you're high, you are basically in a situation right now where unless you've gone to one of the more militant 12-step food addiction programs, there is not a solution out there in the world for you until Brightline Eating came along. Um, Because you have a problem on board that the environmental cues and the willpower gap are fighting against you every single day. And with, you know, leptin resistance and that overpowering hunger mm-hmm. and dopamine downregulation and that, um, you know, horrible craving that you experience periodically. Um, and then the willpower gap, like you're a sitting duck. There's Absolutely. no way you're going to lose your weight. No way. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I give you 0% odds, right? Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, figuring out how to do it, like with a program like Brightline Eating, is like deciding to climb Mount Everest. It's that big a job. But signing up with a crew that takes people regularly and has a history where they've taken 100,000 people up the mountain and down safely without, you know what I mean? Like, that's what you got to do. It's a big job. So that's the susceptibility scale. Not every brain is the same when it comes to food. And be careful. If you feel like you have some addictiveness to food on board, like like you're talking about, Rena, you do, right? Oh, I do. I think I was like a nine. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm what we call a 10 plus plus plus. Um, Yeah, 10, 10 actually. Here's something since I read your academic background, I know you'll appreciate so everyone else don't listen unless you like to geek out on numbers. But as you go from low to high on the susceptibility scale, it's a squared function. So the psychological space at one is very small. Their food behaviors are all pretty much identical. As you move up the scale, the, the psychological space um, gets exponentially bigger. And so the variation among tens is enormous. 
you know, some people use laxatives, some people don't, some people binge their brains out, some people don't, like you can be a 10 and barely a 10 and have a completely different profile than someone who's a 10 plus plus plus. Um, so anyway. Wow. Very fascinating. Fascinating. Chapter five, the saboteur. Ooh, very curious cool. about that one. Yeah. So this is all about the way this all sounds in our head, our inner dialogue as we're choosing what to eat. Okay. People don't realize how consciousness works in the brain. Now, not to say that we've got this all figured out. We don't as scientists, but we know a lot. And here's what we know. The voice in your head that's got that constant sort of chattery narrative to you is not coming from one place. It's distributed. Okay. Um, different parts of the brain that govern different functions by and large, not universally, but by and large create their own, um, voice in your head about that. So, and, and their own subjective conscious experience about that, which means that, you know, visual cortex is also producing what it feels like to see red, not just that you're seeing red and you can respond accordingly, but there's some sort of subjective perceptive ex perceptual experience around that. Right. So um, what we don't realize is that very basic physiological processes result in sounds and a narrative of, of a, a stream of consciousness that sounds like us talking to ourselves and making decisions about things when it's not. So you're, if your brain is hijacked, it'll show up as you feeling like you made a different decision. Mm. This is really critical. So I sometimes try to illustrate this by asking someone to, to really, truly, truly try to hold their breath for two minutes um, or hold their breath while they run up 10 flights of stairs, something that almost nobody can ever do, right? And to listen in their mind, in their brain for what it sounds like when they choose to breathe. <laughs> because if you're really trying to hold your breath, um, at some point you'll notice that you feel like you've changed your mind. Mm -hmm. And you've decided to breathe, but really what's happened is that your brain has decided you're going to die without oxygen and that you better breathe now. And so it, it sounds like you've decided to breathe. So, um, there's amazing research on this that I won't get into where basically, um, even if we stick an electrode in your brain and make things happen, you come away with the feeling that you decided to do it. Mm -hmm. Even if you weren't the one who decided what, who, who, like, like the electrodes going in without your knowledge. Yeah. You feel like you chose to wiggle your finger. Right. And it's like, well, how could you have done that? That was, that was like an electrode in your brain, right? You didn't decide to wiggle it. And you're like, I don't know. I feel like I decided to wiggle my finger. Yeah. So here's, here's the import of this, Lena. This is, you know, my, um, my, my program, Brightline Eating, it works for a huge spectrum of people. It actually works for people who are low on the susceptibility scale, medium on the susceptibility scale, and high. It works for all kinds of people, but my heart especially bleeds for the people who are really high on the susceptibility scale, have health and weight issues, have tried well over a dozen times in their life to lose weight unsuccessfully. And this chapter matters the most to me because those people, Lena, have watched themselves, they believe, they've watched themselves mm -hmm. dedicate themselves to a new diet then choose to eat pizza on a Friday night after a long, hard week. And, and what we know from psychological theory, it's called self-perception theory, is, is you come to learn about yourself by observing your own behavior. 
your deepest identities emerge largely out of watching yourself behave over a period of time. And so what you come to believe about yourself is that you don't love yourself, that you're deeply... You don't have willpower. You have no willpower. In many cases, you hate yourself and you with yourself, you're weak, because you watch yourself abuse yourself with food and honestly treat yourself worse than you'd treat your worst enemy. Absolutely. And who would do that except someone who hates themselves? Exactly. So you connect the dots erroneously and believe that you have deep-seated, like someday I would love to talk to Oprah Winfrey because I'm, I, I can only imagine the cognitive dissonance in that woman's mind saying, well, wait a second. I know I'm not afraid of success. Like, yeah. let's look at the record, right? Yes. I'm not afraid of success, right? Yes. But how does she reconcile yes. her pattern of issues with weight, right? Yes. Yes. There must be, I predict, that there's a part of her yes. that deep down that she holds out some part of her that won't let herself succeed or that feels too flawed to finally crush the weight issue, right? And it's not true. It's her not brain true. is hijacked. Like, it's exactly. got nothing to do with that. Right? Exactly. It's she's the badass that she thinks she is. She totally is, right? She is. There's she all is. stuff going on. She is. She is. I, I love this chapter too. Absolutely. So the good news is, let me just say one more sentence before we move on. The good news is that it doesn't take that much to reverse that, um, that identity. You know, when you start doing bright line eating and, and the way I walk you out of the deep, dark forest on this, one step at a time within just a matter of days, weeks, or months, like not very long, we're talking like less than six months, wow. someone's identity completely turns around. And, you know, if you ask them, for example, a question like, how many years of therapy do you think it would take for you to unpack, you know, 90% of your psychological issues, right? They start the Bright Line Eating Bootcamp thinking it would take 30 years of therapy. And they, you know, six months later, they're like, yeah, I don't think I need therapy at all. I'm good. It's incredible. <laughs> it's an all-in-one system. <laughs> yeah, totally. I love it. All right. Finally, chapter six, the four bright lines. What are these four bright lines? Sugar, flour, meals, and quantities. Sugar, flour, meals, and quantities. No sugar. Not meaning no fresh whole fruit. Fresh whole fruit is fine. We're not talking about the natural sugar found in real food. We're talking about anything. I mean anything added to your food to make it sweeter, which includes all forms of processed sugar. It also includes honey, molasses, agave, stevia, and truvia, all the artificial sweeteners. And Research monk fruit? Includes monk fruit? Yep. All that stuff. Anything added to you. I know. I know. I know. Um, but at the borderline, like, you can eat whole fresh pineapple. So, you know, I'll give you that. <laughs> and no flour. So specify that. Is that white flour? Is that millet flour? flour? Is that no almond flour? No coconut flour? No anything grounded oh. It's the, it's, it's the oh. surface area that causes the issue. You, when you grind something down, you dramatically increase the surface area um, of the molecular exposure to the digestive enzymes, then whoosh, that, that glucose floods right into the system or whatever it's made out, doesn't matter, uh, floods right into the digestive system and it hits the brain way harder and way different than an unprocessed or refined food. And I don't care if you grind your grains at home with stones it doesn't matter once you've ground it up it still is increasing surface area okay so whole almonds are fine almond flour is out exactly eat Got whole it. real food yeah it's interesting because i've always tried to figure out how to make healthy cakes as i call them because i have this uh, yearning for that cake texture yeah. 
So I've come up with these brilliant ways of, you know, mushing banana, one egg, one banana, and some almond flour. And I'm thrilled. And you're saying, uh-uh, Rena can't do that anymore. I can tell in you, Lena, it's the like, I've got this, like, it's in, it's in your voice. And oh, yeah. That love affair with food. That's the addiction. Oh, yeah. That's I know. That's regulation. Yeah. Okay. Let it go. <laughs> let it go, Rena. Let it go. Okay. Let it go. God, you're taking all the fun out of living. No, I'm joking. But I have heard people though. say that. Exactly. That's the dopamine down regulation talking. Yes. Yes. The brain eating way. And in three weeks, that'll be gone. You're like, I can't believe I used to think that all the fun in life was bound up in eating cake. Like, really? Like, you know, life is so much more. You, it just goes away, Lena. Like, okay. and you know this, sweetheart. I know. You're, you're a rock star. Like, you've got. I did it. I did it for 18 months. And actually, I did it for close to two years. And guess what? When I completely healed, it started coming back. So very slowly, I brought in chocolate and I brought in, so it's still no caffeine, yeah. no dairy, but I found a way to create those, those delicious treats. And I don't have a weight issue. However, I still want to do a healthy lifestyle, you know? And so following Brightline is just a great way for me, perhaps every couple of months, just to clean out and get rid of these addictions because it is addictive meaning i started with one a week on a weekend you know one little cupcake i would make it on a weekend and now i'm back to having it every single day because yeah. i'm a nine so yeah no this is this is a great reminder and that's one of the biggest signs that something's off it or not working for you is that it's escalating exactly exactly totally. Chapter yes. seven, automaticity, your new best friend. What is this about? Yeah, so this is the bridge over the willpower gap, basically. So I told you that, you know, your brain is not going to support you in following through long term on the plan that you want to execute when it comes to your food and your weight and your health and all that stuff. Well, the way around that is it's like the teeth brushing solution. Um, you know, think about now, I have to just say here, not everybody does, but about 90, 95% of the population brush their teeth morning and night mm -hmm. effortlessly, whether they're traveling, whether they're sick, whether they're, you know, um, you know, up late at night at a New Year's Eve party, you know, you don't collapse into bed until your teeth are brushed. Yep. 365 days a year. Not everybody's like that, but, um, if, if you're not like that, find some other sort of similar thing that you can think of, like driving a car and doing it effortlessly, like merging in with the flow of traffic up from a freeway on-ramp, right? That would be another example. You, you execute that automatically. You're not like all freaked out like you were the first time you tried to do it, you know? So the teeth brushing thing is really instructive, Lena, because um, you execute that no, regardless of your mood, regardless of your level of motivation, you get it for free. It's like a, it's a task that you execute regularly with zero cognitive load, zero. And bright line eating is a system that gets your food handled just like that. So it's basically taking the entire system of eating, deciding what to eat and following through on actually eating it and moving it from the prefrontal cortex where you're planning and deciding and you know where these other issues of motivation through the addiction reward centers come into play and just moving it into the basal ganglia where we execute automatic behavior sequences without a second thought. And it, when you think of your weight loss journey as being completely tied to how automatic you can make your eating, a few things fall out from there. And, and note, I just want to say, I want to point out, 
anyone who's thinking clearly about the obesity epidemic, this is important, so I'm gonna slow down, would have to come to the conclusion that there has been, up till now, no good solution proposed. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, everyone would be thin already. Exactly. Like a workable solution spreads like wildfire. People get thin in front of their neighbors, in front of their coworkers. Everybody wants to know what they're doing. And if there were anything that actually worked long term to get, get people from obese to thin, everybody would be doing it already. This means, logically, that there are fundamental flaws in the way everybody's thinking about weight loss that are systemic and so ubiquitously assumed, and they're probably close to the opposite of what people should be doing. This chapter explains why and what those things are. The crux of the solution to weight loss, long-term weight loss, is to make your eating as automatic as possible, like brushing your teeth. So you execute it on autopilot with zero cognitive resources. Like, uh, it's been demonstrated that the average person makes 221 food-related choices every day. Wow. Yeah, not with bright line eating. You make maybe three. Like, am I going to eat my lunch before I check email or after? But the lunch is already pre-planned from yesterday, mm -hmm. packed from this morning, and sitting beside you in your cooler bag. So you might choose when you're going to eat it, but that's the only food-related choice you've got related to lunch. You wrote down what you were going to eat for lunch last night. So food prepping is so key. Food prepping is so key. So the two things that fall out from this issue of automaticity that everybody's doing wrong is number one, you need to eat three meals a day or two is okay, not meals and snacks. Mm -hmm. And think about this. What if your dentist told you you needed to brush and floss now six times a day and execute that successfully? Like what are the odds that that would actually go well? Not happening. And the reason is, that automaticity works based on habit stacks. Like we all have a certain yeah. way that we execute our morning and our night. Yes. And it might not be fancy. It might be that your only nighttime routine is brush your teeth and go to bed, right? Mm -hmm. But that's your habit stack for the evening routine. We need to get breakfast wired into your morning routine, dinner wired into your evening routine, and lunch wired into your midday routine. And we need to get systems of planning and committing in there too. Um, and we can get your system set up. Now, I'm not saying you're going to eat the same thing every day. There's ways Brightline Eating has, there, it's all accounted for, but that's the plan. So three meals a day, not more. Um, and then the other thing is exercise. The wrong thing to do when you're trying to lose weight is to start exercising. Mm -hmm. Because exercise taps your willpower every which way from Sunday. It taps your, will, taps your willpower on the way to the gym, in the gym, Afterwards, it creates something called the compensation effect where now you're justifying, you know, eating a little something because you worked out so hard this week and your body now needs and wants more food. It's the wrong thing to do. The right approach to weight loss is rest mm -hmm. because weight loss is toxic. You, you release all these toxins from your body and, and you need every bit of willpower available to set up the systems until they run automatically because setting up the systems takes a lot of effort. You don't have a system that runs automatically from day one. You have to set it up. So you need to take a few months out of your life, dumb down your life as much as you can, and commit yourself and lose your weight once and keep it off for the rest of your life. That's the Bright Line Eating Way. There are so many brilliant nuggets in what you say and in your book, but I would say that this one nugget 
is the biggest game changer for so many people because most weight loss programs insist that you work out a lot. Um, there are programs locally here that have worked for some people short time, short term, temporary, right. and they put people through aggressive workouts while starving them and putting them into all kinds of different modes. And I've always said, but that makes no sense because that compensation effect where when I've run, I come back and I may have only worked, I don't know, lost 300 calories, but I'm going to eat 500 calories because I'm somehow convinced that I worked and burnt and deserve this. That whole, I deserve some treat. We don't need that while we're trying to follow a true weight loss program. I think it's the most brilliant thing. So thank you for sharing that. You're so welcome. All right, chapter eight. I'm so excited to dive right into the plan. So the weight loss food plan, what is it? So in chapter eight, I just walk people through exactly how the plan is structured, the Bright Line Eating food plan for weight loss. Um, And it's a different type of plan. It's based on categories and quantities of food, which has a lot of psychological benefits, including making it a lot easier to eat out and a lot easier to navigate our food environment Um, psychologically, because instead of considering every option and then trying to calculate calories or macros or points or anything like that, um, you're only focused on the categories of food that are on your food plan for that meal. So you end up putting blinders on psychologically and your attentional system is just thinking, where's the vegetable? Where's the protein? Where's the fruit? And that's all you're thinking. Um, So I give specific quantities. I list all, but notice like basically every whole real food is on the plan. Um, So it's not a keto plan or paleo or anything like that. No, it's a very moderate balanced plan, actually. So there's no sugar or flour, and there's a ton of vegetables. And honestly, that's what everybody agrees on. Yeah. Um, You can modify the plan to make it keto or paleo or whole food. The whole food plant-based is easy. I've I've been whole food plant-based at different times in my life, and I lean that way strongly now as well. Um, and I actually break out the protein tables into plant-based and animal-based. So someone who's plant-based doesn't even have to worry about looking at the meat and dairy at all. It's a very easy plan if you're vegan or or vegetarian, but it's equally easy if you're gluten-free, if you've got food allergies, if you've got to follow a FODMAP diet, like it doesn't matter. The plan works for everybody. Great. And there's some recipes in there as well? There are not recipes in that book. Our, Our cookbook is coming out in October of 2019. Excellent. Excellent. Chapter nine, your day one into action. All right, I know day ones are hard, so talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. In Brightline Eating, we're really, really intent on building an entirely new system. And again, one based on automaticity. So in the book, I walk you through, take your day one seriously. And there's a lot of things that you need to do before day one to get ready. Um, our program also works that way where, and I know that we're going to be offering people access to our program um, where you have a check, a, a getting started checklist, like a clean start process where you go through a series of things before you're even starting. Because really on day one, you need to have your ducks in a row. And then from there, you start build a day is like a brick in a new wall of a new identity, a new system of automaticity, and a lifetime of being successful where you've always failed in the past. So day one really matters. And there's stuff to do before it. There's stuff to do on day one. And then there's a template for here's what you're doing every day after that. It's very laid out. Of all the things that you've done yourself and of all the hundreds of thousands of people that have you've put through the program, what is the one most important thing that people must do to get prepped, in your opinion? 
buy a digital food scale. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Yeah. Way, way, way everything. Yeah. You got to weigh your food. And then, and you know, it's not for the reason people think people often think you're weighing your food to eat like a bird. No, no, no. You won't eat enough vegetables. If you're not weighing your food, you won't eat enough food. There's so much food on the planet. It'll blow your mind. Um, and, and you'll lose weight on it. The other thing would probably be if you live with people to have a conversation with them, you know, about, um, you know, Hey, I'm doing this thing now. It's super important to me you know, um, can I have a shelf in the fridge for my foods or could we use this cupboard over there for your snack foods or whatever? That kind of conversation is pretty important too. And can you please stop eating ice cream and brownies in front of me? So important to have that conversation. If necessary. So some people, for some people that's not necessary. And for other people, yeah, it might be, you know, here are the foods that I'm not eating anymore. Would you be willing? My request would be, could you eat them out of the house instead of in the house? Is that possible? If not, let's talk about the Venn diagram of my needs and your needs and where they overlap, right? Maybe on Tuesday nights, if you need to eat ice cream in the house, I'll go to the movies. All right. Chapter 10, the tools that make it work. What what are your top favorite tools that you recommend? Meditation. So important to create that space, that pause between the feeling and the reaction, right? And meditation just gives you a few more seconds of pause going through your day. It also sort of lets you sit with feelings so that you start to feel what your body is like. So in Bright Line Eating, we have a saying, hunger is not an emergency. People are not usually really hungry on the Bright Line Eating plan, but like if your tummy growls an hour before mealtime, that's not an emergency. You know what I mean? Like no one ever starves to death between meals. So we need to get people back in their body, back in touch with their body. So meditation is one. Um, A little food journal that's kept by the fridge with a pen so that the night before, right after dinner, when you're all full and satisfied, you open up the fridge and you write down exactly, I mean to the baby carrot, what you're going to be eating tomorrow for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That one tool right there, that yeah. one habit, yeah, that's, that, you know, you're 80% yeah. of the way there. And that's then the next day, you eat only in exactly that. That's the other, that's the other part of it. Um, and then I would say... Um, uh, we also have nighttime things that we recommend, a nightly checklist sheet, which we give um, both in our program as a downloadable PDF and in our book, uh, in the book, it's in there. So ways to track, you know, what, what gets um, measured gets managed. So if you're tracking, am I meditating? Am I writing down my food? Am I, it's, am I weighing my food, et cetera? You're tracking that, it's going to get handled. If, if you're not tracking it, it's a lot less likely. And then I recommend a five-year journal where you can track the day in a really sweet, beautiful way, a gratitude journal, um, so you can keep your focus on what's going well. I was a positive psychology teacher as well, so there's a lot of like positive psychology stuff built into the program. Well, you know, I wrote the health journal, and for anyone who's listening or watching, please go check out health boot camps for the health journal. We give you a free 30-day journal that you can download, print, and it's got the gratitude piece, it's got the tracking piece, moods, meds, foods. Um, it is. It was critical in my getting to where I am today. So I, I highly recommend. I, I, I agree. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Chapter 11, Bright Line Living. What is that all about? So this is just um, uh, tools and strategies for doing this in real life. So restaurants, travel, special occasions, mm. your in-law bakes you cookies. What do you say? Uh, <laughs> they're gluten. <laughs> they're gluten. <laughs> they're organic. It's like, yeah, well, crack cocaine could be gluten-free and organic. And <laughs> I wouldn't smoke it either, so I still can't eat those. Yeah. Oh, can't and don't. I don't eat those cookies because it's an identity mm. shift. Um, anyway, yeah, that's what that chapter is all about. How do we do this in real life? 
Oh, I love that. I'm going to ask you, how do you do that in restaurants? Just really quickly. There's specific, um, like for every kind we, in, in our program, we go through every single type of restaurant in a separate okay. module. Oh, a perfect. Mexican restaurant fajitas. Why? Because you're going to get grilled vegetables. You're going to get some, you know, Got raw it. vegetables on the side. If you, you know, you can do the beans. If you're plant-based, you can do the chicken or the beef if you're, or shrimp or whatever, if you eat meat. Um, so, you know, we just go through it, but basically because your food plan is categories and quantities, you're going to be looking for the foods in those categories in that restaurant. I mean, I can get a bright line meal at an airport in, in the middle of the night. Um, I know what my categories are and I, then I eyeball my quantities or if I want to, I bring my scale with me. Got it. So that's the chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 13, what if I break my bright lines? How do I circle right back into it? So in my experience, most people break their bright lines at some point, but not everybody. We actually have a fairly large contingent of people who come to bright line eating so ready and so desperate that they just um, start building their wall with those bricks and they just keep going. And, um, but what's really important is the principle uh, to simply resume. That's our phrase, simply resume. And I teach people the components of resuming effectively. It's really important not to be afraid of food and not to be afraid of life um, now that you're doing bright line eating and to understand the radical self-compassion that's needed mm. to successfully resume. Radical self-compassion and the social support, right? Because what starts spinning in our head is not what's true. We need to get mm -hmm. friends on the journey to like check in with after we've had a break. And we need to also really look for the lesson because every break can be a breakthrough. If you understand, you know, the anatomy of what led up to it and what you were yes. thinking and how, you know, whatever. And then you're like, Oh, next time I'll fill in the blank. So, um, you know, breaks can be breakthroughs. They don't have to be They don't. You know, so many of us have dieted our whole lives. And what happens is we break, we either then just the what the hell effect kicks in, which is a technical term in the psychological literature, literally the what the hell effect. It's the I've eaten one piece of pizza, therefore I, I'm just what the hell and I'm going to eat the whole pizza. Yeah. Um, and then some ice cream. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, because today's shot anyway, so. Because today's shot anyway. And for many of us, like we're not starting again until January 1st. Absolutely. Or we've put on 50 pounds and we can't face it anymore or whatever. Or maybe we're starting again on Monday. But the lie we tell ourselves is that today doesn't matter because it's blown. And that's a different – in Brightline Eating, we have a different philosophy. In Brightline Eating, we're really about the speed, resuming quickly and gently and rushing into that social support where the pull is to isolation. The mm -hmm. pull is to hide hide and just feel the shame and eat. And so we teach people in concrete ways how to get out of that shame spiral. Chapter 14, getting to goal weight. What's that all about? Well, first of all, we actually intend to get people there. We're the only weight loss program in the world that has that as an explicit goal. So I just wanted to point that out. Notice around you, everyone else has stopped talking about that. No one's trying to get anybody thin anymore. Um, and, and not that my definition of thin or your definition of thin should be Joe Schmo or Sarah, you know, Sarah Schmo's definition of thin, but everyone's got a right size body for them. And we intend to get people there. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, um, how do you land the plane? Right? Which I think is what the next chapter is about. Why don't we talk about the next chapter as well in the same breath? All right. Chapter 15 conclusion, living happy, thin and free. Yeah. Okay. So, so, Getting to goal weight then is actually about maintenance, 
and land in a plane. So I, <laughs> I didn't know my own book. I wrote it years ago. Um, so getting to goal weight is about um, you, you're losing weight and then you need to gradually add food to sort of land the plane at maintenance. And it's about what does it take to adjust your food long term. We call maintenance a dance because bodies change, metabolisms change. Seasons and, you know, change, our bodies are different depending on what season it is. Mm-hmm. Totally. So that's what that chapter is about. The conclusion, living happy, thin, and free, um, sort of wraps it up, sums it up. And then also I talk about those three components, happy, thin, and free. In happy, I talk about the neuroscience of why your mood's going to lift and how bright line eating is, you know, uh, a really good way to lift depression. Um, I used to be on heavy, heavy doses of antidepressants. I'm on none anymore. And I'm not here to tell anyone to rush and get off their meds. Be sure to work with your doctor. I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD, not an MD. Big difference. And, but I do explain the neuroscience of depression and why what you're eating matters and how in several different ways, not one way, like four different ways, um, the bright line eating plan, um, will affect your mood. And then I talk about, um, thin and, and, and the notion of like what it means as a human being living in this world to be restored to a right-sized body and to, to show up happy and comfortable in your skin and how you know that you're at your body's right weight and, you know, topics like that. It's, it's an identity thing, right? And for a lot of people, it's a scary thing. What do you do Extremely. with that attention? You know, what do you do with, with those, you know, people coming on to you and, um, and there's a lot of inner work. Now, in Brightline Eating, we do that inner work. We've got a course called um, Brightline Freedom, which is all about healing those parts that have been wounded and might try to sabotage us or throw us off track. There's a lot of reasons why people have chronically not allowed themselves to live in a right-sized body, and we address that in Brightline Eating. It's not, that's not all in the book, but that's in our, in our courses. Um, and then free, right? That, that it's not a diet. It's about freedom from food obsession, freedom to live in a right size body. And Lena, you'll love this because ultimately my mission is to, it, just like you, to help a million people to, to get down to goal weight and then live at goal weight for the rest of their lives and then to do what they're meant to do on this planet. Like, mm. I just have this feeling like myself when I was overweight and so many people like losing weight is the first thing on the to-do list when they get all motivated to self-actualize and live a better, brighter life. And so I believe that the person who's going to figure out cold fusion or how to desalinate water, they're busy right now starting the the Atkins diet for the fourth time, right? Like it's like, oh, you know, so we need to unleash all the human potential that's packed on all those pounds so that people can be contributing their gifts to the world fully. Um, Absolutely. Kind of thinking about what they've eaten or not eaten, whether they're on their plan or off their plan, how many Absolutely. miles, how many calories, how many pounds. Like, we need to. Free- it's a shackle. It's a shackle that holds you down and prevents you from really being who you were meant to be on this planet. And totally. it's such a shame. It's such a shame. And it's, it's sad because it's only because we live in a a life of abundance, right? It's only because we live in America and we have access to everything and foods are being created in labs to be addictive and to be delicious. And we have the money to buy what we want, when we want. You know, we don't see these kinds of issues in certain countries where they're not sure where their next meal is coming from. So it's it's, um, sort of interesting to me to note that just because we have access to so much is why we're now shackled 
to fighting off these decisions every day. And to your point, um, creating a, a, a lifestyle that makes this automatic and thoughtless, like I don't have to think about this, this is what it is, frees me to go do so much more with my life. So thank you so much, Susan, for writing the book, for leading the charge, for breaking so many myths. There are so many myths about weight loss and Thank you for getting out there and, and sharing your voice very loudly and clearly. For those of you who've been listening in, thank you so much. Please spread the word. There is a way to get down to your goal weight and to maintain it for the rest of your life. You don't have to have this as your New Year's Eve resolution every single year. And uh, with that said, I hope you'll share this podcast or these videos out and check out the Brightline Eating Bootcamp, and of course, keep an eye on health bootcamps because we are hopefully going to be launching very soon a program for you called the Guaranteed Weight Loss Program. With that said, I'll see you soon. Thank you, Susan. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.